This week's podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10-week online course focused on helping physicians and high-income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals that will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the wait list at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. Before we dive in, I just want to share our story of how we found you, Garrett. So about five years ago, we're driving through New Zealand. We read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and just totally blew our minds and changed our plan. We were right about to buy a primary residence. We decided we're just going to be real estate investors. We're going to put all of our money towards it. We decided not to buy a primary residence and we still don't own actually a primary residence. And as part of that trip, like I literally remember being in this little camper van waiting for the New Zealand for the ferry to go from the North Island to South Island. We were reading your book um, about start your own corporation. And we read the LLC part and we're like, oh, that's exactly what we're going to do. And we went home, we bought 12 doors that first year. So five properties or so. And we literally built your structure from that book. And that's what we have to this day. And so it's just so exciting to have you here. Well, And we're also teaching our students Students, that same structure, right? And we're literally telling them all the things that you taught us in your book. Why Wyoming, right? Why this umbrella structure? Charging order protection, right? So yeah, it's really great to have you here. Yeah. And you work with so many of our students too. Yep. Oh, it's been great working with your students that they come to us very well educated. So you must be doing something right. Oh, you're sweet. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit how you got into asset protection? I think I've read that you were actually investing your own real estate. So can you tell us a little bit of that story? Yeah, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and went to Cal and then went to Hastings Law School in San Francisco. And I always liked corporate law. And then they came out with the LLCs in late 80s, 90s. And I just took to that topic. And so I've always liked that. And then I started investing on my own. And of course, I applied the the use of LLCs to my own investing strategy. And then I became fortunate to become associated with Robert Kiyosaki and the, the Rich Dad Advisor team. And we've gone all over the country and the world talking about financial education. And of course, my piece is to talk about how to protect yourself when you start gaining assets, when you start building your net worth. At the very start, you have to think about how am I going to protect it? And so that's my role within the team. And to hear the story that you told where you read the book and you took the steps that are in the book to protect yourself, it's just really rewarding to hear that you two were people who read the book and followed the principles in the book to your benefit. So it's just great to hear that. Awesome. I'd love to hear the story about how you started working with Robert Kiyosaki, because I think that you're one of the Rich Dad Advisors, and, and that's how we found you. So I'd love to hear that story. Do you ever hear of dumb luck? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm an attorney in Reno, Nevada. I grew up in the Bay Area, but I came up to 
Reno because Nevada is a great state for asset protection. And I like skiing and Lake Tahoe. So I, I wanted to live close to that. And Reno has been a great town for that. And so I'm practicing law here and I'm working with a CPA who moves to Phoenix. She just decided, well, I'm going to make my practice in Phoenix. And she becomes associated with Robert Kiyosaki and they needed a Nevada attorney for the team. And she was nice enough to recommend me. And so that's how it happened. And I think one of the reasons Robert picked me because they, they considered several attorneys is because I played rugby. <laughs> Robert loves rugby. We've gone to the World Cup, which is like the World Cup of soccer for rugby, two times together. We just got back from Japan. We were there in Yokohama for the World Rugby Cup last fall. And so it's just been great working with Robert on not only providing the financial education, but seeing some good rugby. Yeah. So I think the one key point out of that is proximity is power. And this is something we always think about too, is if you're around the right people and you deliver value to them, then they're going to take you to the people that they meet and good people know good people, right? And so you end up meeting other people in their kind of network. And that's how you find really other good vendors too. That's absolutely true, Leticia. If you surround yourself with good people, if your network consists of good people who provide value, you know, that they're not out there just for the money. They're people who actually provide value. You're going to benefit from that now. There's no question in my mind about that. Yeah. You mentioned that actually a lot in loopholes of real estate is the relationships. And I think you have one example in there with two guys, right? Jacob and something else. And one of them treats their team members really, really well and respects them and doesn't try to undercut them at every instance. And the other one actually does. They're always trying to get the best deal for themselves. And the result of that is the one guy who always wants the best deal for himself, like burns those relationships and nobody brings in the deals anymore, right? And that is a true story that happens all across the country in this particular story, it, it's a real estate broker that this one person is trying to get them to cut their commission and you know, why aren't they getting them the best deals? And the other person treats the broker with respect, values his services, doesn't try and cut his commission. And guess what? That's the person who's going to find the best deals because the brokers want to work with someone like that. They want to work with someone who appreciates their efforts. Right. And as your whole team does well, you do well too right? Absolutely. Well, I want to step back a little bit and understand how you got into real estate in the first place. Like what made you think of investing and how did you start out? Well, it's interesting because my parents did not invest in real estate. That was not something we talked about at the dinner table. My dad was a judge in Oakland. So we heard about all the cases, right? And I heard how people who were sole proprietors lost everything. And my dad would say, geez, if they'd only been a corporation, they could have uh, protected themselves. So I learned that at an early age, but they didn't invest in real estate. And so I just came upon it when I was buying my second home. I had a primary home in Reno and I, I got married. We had uh, our son, Ted, we needed a bigger place. And if I sold the house we were in, I would have lost money. And so I just don't like losing money. And so we, we put it up as a rental just because we needed a, a bigger primary residence. So this is my first experience renting out properties. And I thought, this is a good way to go. This is monthly income every single month. Then I joined the uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad team 
And Robert encouraged me to buy bigger properties, which I did. And thank goodness, I look back 20 years later and these properties I bought have been very good for my wife and I. So that's how I got started in real estate. The initial first property was almost by accident because I couldn't make any money on the sale of the property. But then in being tutored by Robert and all, I, I have owned real estate and I'm very thankful that I do. Awesome. So what does your real estate portfolio look like now? Has it dramatically changed compared to where it was like five or 10 years ago or is it about the same? We have made a shift. My wife, we had apartments and there was some effort there. And as we get older, my wife didn't want to deal with these kind of issues. And so we've gone to triple net lease properties. And that has been a good investment for us. And the money appears in your bank account every month. You don't have to do that much for those checks. And just so your listeners understand, you buy a strip center and you have good corporate clients, a Panda Express, a T-Mobile, some of the good corporate clients that need good locations and, and some of these strip centers near major shopping malls can be a good investment. Then you have a management company that manages it for you and the checks come in every month. The management company takes their cut and it's directly deposited into your account. So it's a good way to go for a lot of people. At the start, if you're interested in investing in real estate and managing those single family homes and the duplexes, by all means do it. And then as you get older, maybe some people like management, I would say, but as you get older and especially your spouse doesn't like the idea of management, some of these triple net lease properties are worth considering. Yeah. It seems like a natural evolution of people, right? They start initially in small multifamily or small single family homes, and then they go to the bigger and bigger and bigger. And at a certain point, like even Kenji, for example, doesn't want to have real estate professional tax status his whole life, right? At a certain point, we probably will transition to the Walgreens of the world and sit back and have triple net leases, right? Sure. sure. Or larger multifamily buildings that have on-site management. It's my dream is that I would love to be in the 100 plus unit apartment complexes. And that's the beauty of real estate is there's so many areas that you can go into. You start out small and you grow and maybe you'd really like the apartment buildings and you have professional management, but you like to be on top of that. That's great. You have that option. Some people like Letitia Walgreens is a great example. Those are just A-rated properties and a good return. There's just a wide range of alternatives within real estate. I think knowing the principles of real estate and then testing out what you like, and you have the ability and the flexibility to shift from one type of investment to another. Awesome. So I'd love to focus a little bit more on asset protection. And you know, I'm not going to talk about the Wyoming umbrella structure because I'm going to tell all of our listeners and our students to just go pick up your book and read that part. But I want to go a little bit deeper. First question is, it's been now five, six years actually since we started implementing your structure. My question is, has there been any major changes in the Wyoming law that we should be aware of in the last five or six years that would impact us either positively or negatively with that structure? No, Wyoming has been consistent. If there is a change for the better in asset protection, Wyoming will pass it, <laughs> right? So right now, things have been good for the last five years. 
And another thing to note, Kenji, is that we have three states that compete against each other to be the best. And that's a good thing for all of us that want asset protection. So Nevada, Wyoming, and Delaware essentially compete against each other to provide the best corporate and LLC asset protection they can. That's good. We want that kind of competition. But for the last five years, things in Wyoming have been great and very protective. Oh, there's one change. The annual fee used to be $50 a year. Now it's $52. (laughs) They've had a huge spike in Wyoming, up to $52 a year. So would your recommendation still be Wyoming at this point? Or if somebody wants to do Delaware or has other specific reasons, would there be recommendations to go to Nevada or Delaware? Well, it's really the client's choice. We explain what the differences and pros and cons of it are of each one. But when we give people the reasons for Delaware, they don't list your name on the state website. They have the best asset protection along with Nevada and Delaware. And it's only $52 a year versus $350 or more for the other two states. Most of our clients pick Wyoming. So it sounds like your advice on having an umbrella LLC at the top and then kind of property owning LLCs still stands. Is that correct? Correct. Now, what would you say to people who say, well, that just becomes too cumbersome? Because we hear that all the time. Or costly. Yeah, or costly, right? Because at one point we had one umbrella and we had 15 property owning LLCs. So it was a lot, but we thought it was well worth it. So what do you say when people say, ask you about that? Well, do you drive around without car insurance? I mean, these entities are a form of insurance, right? And so the expense isn't that great. Yes, we have California that's $800 per entity per year. That adds up for people. You can always put two or three properties in one LLC. I I prefer not to put 10 properties in one LLC because if a tenant sues, they could reach the equity in all 10 properties. But you could put one or two or maybe three into one if that's an issue for you. You have a property that is generating revenue. And these filing fees are an expense, right? It's just a cost of doing business. And if we follow the structure where we have a single member LLC on title, and then a single member Wyoming LLC, which could be husband and wife through their living trust, you're not paying for extra federal tax returns. Everything flows through under your personal return. So the accounting and the tax preparation should not be that onerous. And in some states, you'd have to file a state tax return, but you're going to have to do that anyway, whether you own it through an LLC or your individual name. It's not like these are extra burdens that you have when you have an LLC in place. You have an obligation to file a tax return, whether it's in your individual name or in an LLC. So, you know, people who complain about the burden, you got to suck it up. You've got to have this type of insurance. Uh, Regular insurance is the first line of defense. We always recommend that people have the general and fire insurance for their properties. But you need this second level of protection because let's admit it, insurance companies have an economic incentive to not cover every claim. They have a little two-point type at the back of the contract with all sorts of exclusions. You can't be 100% sure you're going to be covered by an insurance contract. So you need these LLCs as a second line of defense. 
I think another objection we hear with the in terms of the cost is for people who live in California, to which we often say, well, that's your choice, right? But what would you say to those people who live in California and and there's that franchise tax of $800 per LLC? They say that can really add up, even though if you have a lot of these property owning LLCs. Well, Kenji, you hit it on the head. It's their choice to live in California. If they didn't have a beach, they wouldn't be able to get away with all these fees. But Right now, that's the way it is in California. And you and I aren't going to change the rules for the Franchise Tax Board. So either you pay the $800 for the LLC. It's a cost of the business. It's an expense. You're going to be able to expense it out. As well, that $800 is really the tax on the first $50,000 of profit. It's not like you're losing. You have to pay extra if you have taxable uh, income up to $50,000, the 800 covers that. So it is part of a tax credit. Kenji, we're seeing so many California license plates driving around here in Reno, where I live. A lot of people are leaving for that reason. And there's an exodus going on right now out of California to Nevada, Texas, the other Intermountain West states. So people have decided, look, I don't want to pay these fees and people are leaving. Now, that said, you can make money in California real estate, but we also have to recognize that in California, there's a tremendous amount of litigation, much more than in other states. So you want these LLCs in place to protect you. Sure, you can grouse about the costs, but you really need this protection because there are all sorts of attorneys looking for situations in which they can sue So you need the LLC. Now, let's say you have an LLC set up in Wyoming. We like the Wyoming protection and you're going to use it to protect California real estate. There's this misunderstanding out there that, well, I set up a Wyoming LLC, I'm done. But you're collecting rents in California. Your property's in California. You are part of the California tax system. So what you have to do is you've set up the Wyoming LLC. You have to bring it into California, and we help people with this, you qualify to do business in the state of California, and you pay that $800 fee, but then you're good. Now, if you don't qualify, if you bring the Wyoming LLC in and do business in California without qualifying and paying the $800 a year, the penalty for not doing that is $12,000 a year. So people have been hit with this giant penalty. And it's just much better to just pay the darn $800 and follow the law. You're in California. You're part of the California tax system. You're not going to get around that. If they catch you, there's a heavy penalty. So what about our students who are living in California, investing in Texas? They've got their Wyoming umbrella, but they want to do a Delaware statuary trust. What do you? The DST has become quite popular. So what do you think about that? We don't do the Delaware Statutory Trust. I don't have that much experience with it. I know that they're becoming quite popular. So at some point, I'll look into it. California, the research indicates that California doesn't tax the Delaware Statutory Trust. And I can only believe that when California finds out that they don't, they will. And so... (laughs) They're very aggressive. The Franchise Tax Board, we have to do more planning for them as we do more than we do for the IRS. So once California figures this out, 
I'm sure that they're going to start taxing the Delaware Statutory Trust. Are you interested in learning more about owning your own portfolio cash flowing rentals? If so, we invite you to take our free mini course, the Crash Course in Cash Flowing Rentals. When you take our mini course, you'll learn the strategies we use to build our portfolio. You'll also get to see several of our students featured who have successfully built their own portfolios as well. To take our crash course, link to semiretiredmd.com forward slash mini course, M-I-N-I dash C-O-U-R-S-E, or visit our website at semiretiredmd.com and link to the crash course on cash flowing rentals there. You may also want to join a waitlist for our introductory course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals, while you're at our website too. We'll see you there. This episode is brought to you by Epic Financial Strategies. Have you purchased a bunch of different products from a bunch of different financial professionals and at the same time don't understand how your products are integrated and coordinated? Kelly Cole and Rob Gill have a team of professionals whose job is to help you navigate through the financial seas of uncertainty and create optimal amounts of loss with little or no additional out-of-pocket costs. They help you craft your investment philosophy, assisting you in creating your own financial website so you can monitor and measure your investment decisions. If you're interested in a free consultation, you can reach them at semiretiredmd at epicwm.com. Now back to the show. ask a couple more state questions because yeah. another a couple issues Pennsylvania is a real issue right oh yeah yeah so tell <laughs> us what you think about Pennsylvania and what you recommend on the transfer tax you've got to pay two percent to transfer from your name into the name of the LLC most states have an exception most states it's not an issue but on a million dollar property even if you have a nine hundred thousand dollar loan on a million dollar property, that 2% tax is $20,000, right? So we have done the research. We've talked to Pennsylvania attorneys. We have not found a way around that. Pennsylvania is pretty strict on that. So what you want to do is if you're going to buy a property in Pennsylvania, you want to take title in the name of the LLC right off the bat, right? You and the seller are going to split that 1%, hopefully, Right. So you've already paid for it. Well, take title in the name of the LLC so you don't have to go back later and pay the 2% all over again. And if the bank has a problem with it, find a good bank. Most banks now, they there is some flexibility on taking title in the name of the LLC. So you may want to shop this around because that's a big hit, $20,000 for a million dollar property. And, and again, Letitia, we haven't found a way around that one. Now how about Florida? So what's the issue with Florida? The stamp tax. Fill me in on that one. So as we understand it, there's it's much like Pennsylvania, It's just, but it's a much lower tax that some places in California will charge people to transition their property into an LLC or quit claim it. I know you suggest warranty deeds generally, right? We do, right. Yeah. And we should talk about that. Do you want to talk about it now? Yeah. Okay. So you have a couple choices on how you transfer title from your name into the name of the LLC. And there are three main ones, but the two are the same, the grant deed and the warranty deed. And what that means, you're granting it from your name to the LLC name, and the warranty deed is the same thing. Basically, 
when you use a warranty deed, you are warranting that you own that property. And if you don't, the person who is accepting the property is receiving it, can sue you for a failure to provide good title. So when you're buying a property from someone, you always want a warranty deed or a grant deed because that gives you the ability to go back against them if they've delivered an improper title or if they don't have title to the property, you can sue them for what you paid the property for. The quick claim deed is the opposite. It says, I don't really have any idea what I'm transferring to you. I think I own it, but I'm not sure. And they, the quitclaim deed says, I'm just transferring what I may own to you. And if it's not good title, you can't sue me. We just, I just gave you what I thought I have. And so you don't want to use a quitclaim deed because if they transfer title to you that isn't good, you don't have recourse to go back against them. Now, people misrepresent the quitclaim deed as a quick claim deed, Q-U-I-C-K, as if it's somehow quicker and easier than a warranty deed. Well, the difference is really three words or three or four words in the deed. It's not that much different. The two deeds, quit claim and warranty deed, are not different that much. It's just the language where the warranty deed says, I represent this and you can sue me if I don't provide you with good title. So why would you ever accept a quit claim deed? Now, when you're transferring from yourself to yourself, you could say, well, look, I accepted a warranty deed from the people I bought it from. Why can't I just quit claim it to myself? Here's what happens. When you do the quit claim, it severs the title insurance. And so you've paid for the title insurance. You want them to ensure that the title is good, that the lines are proper. There's no unknown encumbrances. You want that title in place. Well, a warranty deed from you to you will continue the title insurance. A quit claim deed severs it. So even if you're transferring from yourself to yourself, your name to an LLC, I always recommend using the grant deed or the warranty deed. Would that incur an additional cost for the title company to have to do a whole another search? Yeah. If you're going to get, if you have to get a new policy of title insurance, you're going to pay those fees all over again. You've already paid for them. Let's just do it once, right? What we found in our experience is that a lot of people do quit claim deeds. And that's what we were doing for a while before we read your book and then realized that warranty deeds were a possibility because I don't even think most people know that's an option. I think we've gone the lazy man's route and just continued quit claim deeds, but we ask our title insurance to add our LLC on as an additionally insured, which is another okay. way of doing it. And sometimes they'll do it for free and sometimes they'll charge you like $150. But that's, I think there are really two pathways here and probably the more official one is the warranty deed. But it seems like sometimes they just don't seem to encourage that or want you to do it. And I don't know why. Who, who doesn't want you to do it? The title company? It feels like it's like within the deal, like the different parties, like the agents and title insurance doesn't really want it. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, Kenji? I don't. I think the important thing for our listeners is that just be aware that, yeah, that title insurance could be severed if you transfer the property into an LLC. And so I think it's a conversation you need to have with your title company when you're purchasing a property and you say, hey, I'm going to be moving this into an LLC after I purchase it with a residential loan. And make sure that, that there are two options and you explore them. And if you can get a warranty deed at the same price, it's probably worth it. 
Well, and the warranty deed should be at the same price. It's it's just the wording is different. These are forms. The warranty deed has been around for hundreds of years and the attorneys don't have to do much modification to these deeds. So it should not be an expense item. And for a title insurance company to say, use the quit claim deed, that's just not good advice because, well, maybe it helps them because it severs the title insurance. It's less of an obligation to them, but you're paying for the title insurance. Let's make sure it works into the future. Absolutely. So I, I'm going to talk about a couple other possible structures that people have used that we've seen students use. So sometimes besides the Wyoming LLC and the property owning LLC, people have used land trusts in between the two of them. So now you have even a third layer. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, if you've read uh, Loopholes of Real Estate, I'm not a big fan of a land trust. There are just all sorts of misconceptions and misinformation about them. They don't provide asset protection, certainly. So why would you put a land trust in between the Wyoming holding entity and your title holding properties? I, I don't even see the utility in that. Let me just mention one situation, Letitia, where people say you need a land trust for privacy. So you have land trust on title to a property in Ohio, right? And the idea is that when you go to look up who owns the property, it's a land trust and you can't find out who the owner is. And the trustee is listed as John Jones, right? So this is great privacy, they say, but here's where reality kind of kicks in. If you get sued by a tenant, they have a right to serve notice on the registered agent of an LLC. There's a place where they can go and serve process. And that's good because we want the service we provide in all 50 states. We want the registered agent to get that complaint, that lawsuit, to the landlord, to the owner of the LLC as quickly as possible because they need to get their insurance company to defend the case, right? You've only got 30 days to answer a complaint and you want the insurance company's attorneys to be answering that complaint. In the land trust scenario, you go to the county and it's a land trust and there's this trustee who's listed and maybe it doesn't have their address, right? So how does the tenant's lawyer serve the land trust. It's not easy. And what happens is in that situation, the lawyers and the tenant's attorney goes to the court and says, your honor, we can't find who owns this land trust, right? We, we don't know where they are. And so the court says, okay, well, you can publish notice in the newspaper and they publish the notice. It's that little two point type that no one ever reads. And then they go back to court and you say, well, the land trust trustee didn't answer the complaint. And the court says, well, then you get a default judgment. You win the case. All right. So this is not a good way to protect yourself. When you finally get notice that you have a default judgment against you and you go to the insurance company and say, God, we got sued. Now I have this judgment. Are you going to cover it? The insurance company is going to say, look, you didn't give us notice. We would have defended you at the start, but now you have this judgment. You didn't even set up a situation in which you could get notice of a lawsuit. We don't have to cover you in this situation. So there's just this misinformation about land trust. Privacy is great, 
But privacy in this situation, when you need notice of a lawsuit, is not great. I see. So almost like too much privacy and yeah. <laughs> too much anonymity, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I've actually never heard that argument. No, I haven't either. Another thing that we see people do is set up a management LLC. So it becomes property owning LLC owned by umbrella LLC managed by a management LLC. Do you have thoughts on that? So here's the thing about the management LLC. First of all, it's not going to own anything, right? It doesn't hold real estate. It's not owned by the Wyoming holding LLC. It's just off on its own right? We have an LLC, maybe it's taxes and S Corp. Uh, if you're going to pay management salaries, that's a good candidate for uh, salary income. We tax it as an S Corp so we can minimize payroll taxes. And the management company, again, does not own anything because a management company can get sued, right? Now, a lot of people think if I have a management company, then the title holding LLC where the fourplex is can never get sued for management issues. Here's the issue. The management company is the agent of the title holding LLC. It's performing services on behalf of the title holding LLC. So that title holding LLC, if there's a management issue, it can also get sued. So people have this misunderstanding that if I have a management company, it'll always be the one that gets sued. They'll never reach my title holding LLC. A good attorney is going to sue both entities. Now, if within the management company, you have a number of employees, right? And a sexual harassment claim uh, arises between the employee and the president or the manager of the place. That does not affect the title holding LLC, right? So in that case, the management company is good because it the activity occurs within the management company and doesn't spill over to the title holding LLC. So there are advantages of having a separate management company. Interesting. Something along those lines, if you're self-managing and you have an LLC structure, are you putting yourself in the line of a lawsuit if something happens, if the tenant sues, you're the property manager, so sues you directly as well as the LLC, is that going to put you at risk? That's a good question. So let's look at it. If you have a manage uh, an LLC that you're the manager of, if you're acting within the scope of the LLC in your management capabilities, you're protected individually. Now they can sue the LLC, right? And that's true in any case. They can sue the LLC for a management issue. But if you are acting in your capacity as manager for the LLC, the litigation comes against the LLC, not you personally. Interesting. That was a good question. Yeah. Okay. Now, one little, one little exception, and that's if you're acting in wanton and willful misbehavior, you're doing intentional bad acts, then you can be sued personally. And that's true in any case. Yeah. Okay. So one more structure question. Okay. okay. And then we should do our last two questions. Okay. So do you recommend above the umbrella LLC, like a trust, a personal trust? If so, why or why not? Well, certainly a living trust is good. The living trust allows you to avoid probate. When you pass, you don't have to go to court and have the court supervise the distribution of your assets. What happens in probate is the attorneys get paid quite well for probating an estate. So we like the living trust because the living trust says, you know what? I am smart enough. 
I can be my own trustee for the start. I'm going to appoint my son or someone else to be the trustee after I pass. And this is a document that keeps the probate out of court. You do it privately. And this does not become a matter of public record because in probate, people can, it's a matter of public record. People can see what you own. So the living trust is great for the estate planning and the avoidance of probate. The key thing about the living trust is, and this is again, some misinformation that's out there. It provides zero asset protection, right? So people think I set up a living trust. I put the fourplex into it. I've got asset protection because it's a trust. No, you do not have asset protection. So what you do is you have the Wyoming LLC be owned by the living trust. Wyoming LLC gives you the asset protection. Living trust gives you the probate avoidance. They work together. So I do like having the Wyoming LLC owned by a living trust. There's a second type of trust you can use, which is called an irrevocable trust. The living trust is revocable. You can change it up until your death. The irrevocable trust means you can't revoke it with a couple little of ex uh, exceptions. So you're locked in. Some people are like the asset protection trusts that are out there now. I think 15 states have them. The Nevada Asset Protection Trust is favored because once you put the assets in a two-year period, a creditor can complain about it, but after two years, they're locked in, right? A creditor can't complain after two years once the assets are in the Nevada Asset Protection Trust. And the trustee of that trust is by law prohibited to make any distributions to creditors. So it does provide good asset protection. We, we don't set them up. We, I refer them out to another attorney that sets them up. I will say that they're expensive. The trustee fees add up each year. So I would say that probably 90% of my clients do not set up an irrevocable trust. The living trust is great. I always recommend people do that, especially if kids. But the irrevocable trust is for some people, but it's certainly not for everyone. Do you still have control if you have an irrevocable trust? Well, you have a trustee that is responsible for making all the decisions, and that's how you can get around having to pay creditors. The, the court can say, well, Kenji, you've got to pay this creditor. And you say, well, you know, I have to talk to my trustee of the trust. And of course, the trustee is going to say, no, I'm not going to give money to your creditors. That's a fiction that there is that you, Kenji, don't have control because the trustee has control. The one issue is if the trustee doesn't follow your orders, there's a way to replace the trustee. So if your trustee passes or if they're not mentally with it and you want someone who's sharp as your trustee, you can replace the trustee. There's a thing called a trust protector that can do that for you. But there's these trusts are being used by people. Another thing to mention, though, is let's say you set up a Nevada Asset Protection Trust and the assets are in California and California doesn't recognize the Nevada Asset Protection Trust, you're not that well protected. So you still need the Wyoming LLC and the title holding LLCs to gain that protection because not every state is going to follow the terms of an out-of-state asset protection trust. Wow. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for going so deep on this topic.
So we're going to close by asking you two questions that uh, we ask all of our guests. The first one is, what is your definition of rich? Well, for me, it's my family. We're comfortable, but I just, I can't imagine not having kids. So I just, and we travel together, we ski together as a family. Those are the richest experiences I have. Amazing. Awesome. And then what is one strategy, habit, or mindset that separates someone who's rich versus someone who's poor? Well, the rich would have a mindset that the money will come. If you provide value, the money will come. And and I tell the staff here this. It's just, we have to service the client. We have to provide the best service possible to the client and the money will come. You don't even have to worry about it. If you provide a good service, the money will come. I think the poor mentality is, geez, I've got to get this money right away, right? I've got bills. I've just got to get paid right away. And that's a poor mindset. And unfortunately, people are in that situation and, and you know, you, they've got to figure out a way to break out of it. But that mindset is going to hold you back. You, you need to have more of a mindset of abundance and service than the poor mindset that everything is money. I, I do this work for money and that's it. Yeah, absolutely. We subscribe to that completely, you know, that you help people, you come from service and you care for them and everything else just works out. The money comes completely. We believe that too. Well, thank you so much for joining us in this episode. And I really have a lot of other real estate questions. So we'll go into episode two. Great. The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.